All right, so to get rolling, like I said, we're gonna talk about sin. There's kind of a few main things that we're gonna cover. I'm not great at like bringing out, hey, this is the next point I'm talking about, but I'm gonna lay them out here so that as we're talking about the stuff, you can hopefully see where stuff fits in if I forget to do that. Uh, so the, the main things that we're gonna talk about is what is sin? Next will be where did it come from? What does it mean that we have a sinful nature? And why are we guilty of Adam's inherited guilt? So, yeah. So first off is what is sin? Where did it come from? What does it mean that we have a sinful nature? And why are we guilty of Adam's sin? Everybody got those if you're taking notes? Cool. All right, so as we talk about sin, this is actually a topic that a lot of us, I think we might not realize it, but a lot of us actually come with like quite a, a preloaded idea of this topic without even being fully aware. Some of those pre-assumptions are really healthy and good. Some of them are not quite as good as others. So hopefully tonight we can flesh out what sin actually is and try and like ground us in truth and not just go off of assumptions, things we've been taught and stuff like that and actually read what scripture has to say and see what scripture has to say uh, holistically. So, to kick the evening off, when, I, when you guys hear the word sin, what comes to mind in general? This part is interactive. You are allowed to speak. What comes to mind when you hear the word sin? Ten the Ten Commandments. Good guess, Aaron. You called it. <laughs> An action taken against God. An action taken against God, yep. What else? Failing. Failing, yeah. To miss the mark. To miss the mark, yeah. Yeah, those are all good. So, as we covered last week, if you were here last week, if not, that's okay. We're going to quickly revisit. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12 to 19, Paul states that sin enters the world through one man. That's a paraphrase, but he discusses how sin came into the world through Adam uh, and therefore spread to the rest of the world. Um, and where do we actually see that happen? What event is Paul talking about? Where in the Bible would we find the event? Some of you guys, I'm hoping most of you would know. This part is interactive as well. Genesis 3. Genesis 3, thank you. Yeah, so we're going to actually just start our evening by reading Genesis chapter 3, basically as a whole. Um, some of you guys might feel like it's just to kill time, if, especially if you've read it a few times and you know what's happening. It's not, though, because Genesis chapter 3, being at the start of our Bibles, it actually lays a lot of really good foundational work for our understanding of what sin is and what we're doing when we do it. And so it's really important to start at the beginning there so that we can understand the rest of the mosaic that's painted about sin throughout the rest of Scripture. So I'm just going to start by reading Genesis chapter 3. And what I would ask you guys to do is if you're taking notes, take some notes. If you're listening and you're someone who like actively listens and you just have to sit there and process what's being said, what I would ask is that you guys, as we're reading this, start to to pay attention to the order of events and the, how God reacts to stuff, how Adam and Eve react to stuff, how the outside world reacts to them, those types of things. Ask yourself lots of questions as we're reading this uh, because this lays the foundation. And so I'm going to start and you guys can follow along. If you're curious which translation I'm going to read from tonight, it'll be the ESV in case that's easier for you to follow along if you have the same translation. So Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be de desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and and you shall bruise his heel." To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for, du- for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And it goes on till the end of the chapter there. So this is like our first big event that we see in scripture, uh, that we see sin active. So... I think a good starting point when we're reading something like this is to actually understand the words that are used. Um, And so, again, we're going to be hopping away from this, but this is the foundation. So always remember what's going on in this passage with uh, whatever we talk about. Does anyone happen to know where the first use of the word sin is in the Bible? Any guesses? Genesis. Genesis is correct. Any more specific guesses? Cain and Abel. Yeah, Cain and Abel. It's actually not the fall narrative. We don't actually see the word sin used, not even in the original Hebrew text. It's not actually used in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 is the first time that the specific Hebrew word sin is seen. By chance, I know we have a couple of people that like Hebrew in the room. Do you know what that word is? If not, have it, but I just want to give a chance. Do you know it, Harlan, by chance? What is it? Hatah, yeah. And so the word hatah actually just means to miss the mark. Um, And some of you guys might be worried that that might kind of take some of the weight off of sin, uh, but it doesn't actually, and we're going to flesh that out, obviously. Uh, But it means to miss the mark. Um, Even there's other examples, I believe it's in Judges, where the Israelites were trained to sling a stone from their slings and not hatah, a hair on someone's head. It's the same word that's used and it's meant to miss the mark, right? And so they'll use it here. Uh, It's the first time it's used is in the Cain and Abel narrative. Um, And so what mark are we actually missing? Sin itself is a failure to follow God's design and his law. It's a failure to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And it's a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. So this isn't just like some fancy theologian's uh, words. This is actually how Jesus summarizes the entirety of the law, which was meant to, you know, bring sin to the forefront of everybody's life, to, to make them recognize how sinful they are and how other they are than God. And how does he summarize it? In Matthew chapter 22 Uh, Verses 34 to 40, he summarizes it exactly like that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul's view of the commandments are the same, right? And so in this, in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is summarizing these things, there's two things that lead to sin, or that are sin. Any one of these two things is sin, a failure to love God and a failure to love your neighbor. A failure to love your neighbor as yourself is a failure to love God as well. So, I'm hoping 
that if you guys are paying attention to Genesis chapter 3, you might start to see that. But what we're going to do is we're actually just going to talk about the Cain and Abel story here really quick. And then we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Like I said, we're going to hop around because we're trying to build a picture. So it's okay to do that in this case. In Cain and Abel's story, I could read it all. But I think with everybody here that I, I see, I think we should be able to build a picture of what happens with this narrative in Cain and Abel. So what actually happens between Cain and Abel? How does that narrative go? Cain gets jealous of Abel, kills him. Yeah, Cain gets jealous of Abel and he kills him. There's an interaction in between there. Who's it between? God and Cain, yeah. So if any of you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 4, when we see God talk to Cain, what does he say to him? Basically tells him to uh, go about the sacrifice the way that he told him and not his own. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, another detail in there that he says. This, it's actually got the first use of the word sin in it. Sin is waiting at your door. Yeah, sin is crouched. Some of your translations might say sin is crouching. Um, so God, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. You guys can probably start to see some of the words kind of mirror on to some of the stuff from Genesis chapter 3, hopefully. And so, we already had the answer. Cain ends up killing his brother. He sins against his brother, but he also sinned against God because God directly told him not to. Phil, go ahead. There's something interesting in that verse that I heard a sermon about quite a bit of detail on it. The wording used there is also the same wording used in the curse of the woman, that his desire is for, her desire will be for her husband. Yeah. And the sin is, sin's desire is for Cain. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's just interesting. We can talk about it too. Yeah. Yeah, no, that is interesting, and that's exactly what I mean by starting to see some of those words map onto each other, right? It starts building that picture and fleshing it out, right? Yeah. God made, made us be that way. It's actually, I, I believe, and this is what I heard in the sermon, it makes sense to me that it's a desire for her husband's role. Hmm. Which, I don't know if that makes sense to people, take it for what it's worth. But, but it's the word of it, it's to, her desire would be for her husband. So it should become. Like, yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's a curse. It's and and we have, I guess, as Christians, we have to deal with it, live yeah. with it, and maybe fight it. Yeah. When the when the temptation comes. Yeah. And so, what with that then building off of that, what language do we see used of sin in this passage in in Genesis chapter four? What kind of language is used with it? to describe what it's doing and, and how it's interacting with humanity. It's adopting human traits. It's crouching. It's waiting like yeah. to attack or something. Yeah. In what way would we be able to see a parallel between what happened in Genesis 3 and chapter 4? If sin is crouching and its desire is for you, do you think that draws any parallels to how the serpent interacted and preyed on humanity? Yeah. So it's taking on animal characteristics, and yet sin is not an animal per se. Um, but it's quite interesting. We have sin against human, and we have sin against God, directly disobeying what God has encouraged us to do in his wisdom, and it affects the people around us. Do we see that in Genesis chapter 3? Yeah. Yeah. We do. God has given a command. The command is to not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, but rather to eat of the tree of life. And humanity disobeys it. Eve eats of the tree, and what does she do? She gives it to Adam. 
she affects other humans with her sin as well, right? All right, so with that picture, we're going to keep moving here. Um, so yeah, sin, the first two examples that we have here, I've summarized it a couple times, but if you're looking for, for points to write down, the first two examples are the exact summary that God, that Jesus gives in the New Testament. It is a failure to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, like Adam and Eve failed to do when they desired to become like God and ate of the tree. And sin is against your neighbor. If you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, and we see Cain kill his brother Abel, um, I, I have no idea. This might be like really off topic, but every time I think of this, it's a way that I used to always remember it because I used to get confused when I was a kid. If you're ever confused about who killed who, it's Cain killed his brother Abel because Cain hated his brother as long as he was Abel. I don't know if that helps anyone, but hopefully it does if you get confused with it. Um, so we could probably leave that there if we wanted to. Uh, but we see this all throughout Scripture. The rest of the Old Testament builds this picture of how humanity comes in and God gives grace, gives another chance, and props someone up, takes someone and says, okay, now I want you to lead and I want you to have dominion over my people. And he messes up royally, consistently, right? It builds this picture that humanity is not able to do this, right? We see the sin nature play out now uh, throughout the rest of Scripture. We're going to cover sin nature a little bit later. But we see that expanded on in the Old Testament especially. So, if we know now what sin is, a failure to love God and to love your neighbor, where did it come from? Where did it originate, right? Have any of you guys ever asked that question? No? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. I think it's a fair question to ask, right? Um, and so this, when it comes to teaching about theology, I think this is a question, this is one of those that will probably leave you with more questions than answers. Uh, but that is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think in our... In, Especially in our culture, we thrive off of being able to find the answer to absolutely everything. And I think this is one of those where we can be okay and still have good theology to rest in tensions that we find in Scripture. But that doesn't mean that there isn't things that we should talk about with this. <clears throat> so yeah, along the lines of what I was just saying, Richard Phillips once said, the attempt to make rational sense of sin will always run aground on the inherent irrationality of sin. It doesn't make sense that we would sin. It doesn't make sense that Adam and Eve would sin. So to try and understand why sin would come into the picture won't make sense. They were, in good they were in perfect relationship with God. They had what they needed. They were in good relationship with him. And yet they chose to sin. Phil, I saw your hand go up. Yeah. It describes him and his his uh, his coat of sapphires and all, and he was the highest. It talks about him being the highest angel in heaven. Yeah. And then it says that he looked on God. It, it it's really it's it's like I believe it's like God talking about him. Hmm. And it's comparing him to a king of Tyre, I think, the current king of Tyre at the time. And then it kind of goes between this king, the description of the king of Tyre, and it like all of a sudden changes, and it's talking about Lucifer, and how he thought of himself, and then and that was the first. I guess you could. If, yeah. You could probably say that's the first instance of sin. Yeah. But he looked at God and basically said in his heart, "I want to be God." Yeah. Yeah. You're you're not wrong. I don't remember if it's in Ecclesiastes, Andrew. You might know Ezekiel. Yeah, so you're not wrong, there is that passage, but again, the question is raised, why would he feel that way? If we know Yahweh is who he says he is, why would he feel that way? It, it's not rational even for him to feel that way, and yet he did, and God created him able to feel that way. So, uh, yeah, we're going to, there's something that does need to be, or a few things that need to be said. There's lots that could be said about the origins of sin, but there's a few things that must be said if we're covering this, especially in a theology course or just in general. Um, first of all, God does not love sin. He doesn't even like it. 
It's not good. First John 1.5 says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. That is a true statement. There is no sin in God. He does not love it. God is not pleased when we sin at all. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 to 5, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So God does not love sin. He is not able to sin. Um, If we were to try and say that he is able to sin, then we would have to go against all of the attributes that we discussed in the first couple of weeks. Those attributes are, if they stand true and they do, mean that God is unable to sin without, is without sin and is not guilty of any kind of sin. And yet there's a tension that God is sovereign over sin. Um, to, to deny the opposite and say that he isn't sovereign over it would be, again, to, deny, to be to deny his attributes. Um, so scripture talks lots about how his sovereignty and his providence over sin. Uh, and so some examples that you guys might be familiar with, and if you have more, then I'd love to hear them as well as we talk about this, just because other people might want to hear them as well. Uh, but some examples would be Joseph talking to his brothers after having been sold into slavery. Joseph's Again, paraphrasing, Andrew, if you know the passage off by heart, I didn't actually note it down. Uh, but the, Joseph is talking to his brothers, and in essence, he says, what you intended for evil, God meant for good, right? We see Jesus on the cross as the ultimate example of this, right? The very most heinous crime, the very most heinous evil that this world has ever seen, the murder of a completely innocent man, God used to free his people for those who believe, Right? God planned for Jesus to die on the cross so that there was payment for sins. There's the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in Exodus. Right? We see both Pharaoh harden his heart and keep the people in slavery, and we see God harden Pharaoh's heart. And he does it so that he's known. We see the whole book of Job as this, right? The Satan comes and asks God, hey, your servant Job, right? Can I... Can I go and make him fall? He's righteous. Can I go and do that? And God allows him to do that. I don't know. Can you guys think of any other examples? Of yeah, Romans chapter one. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree. Judas is a good example. Yeah. He chose to betray Jesus, but it says that he was destined to do so. Yeah. So it's both. Yeah. Yeah, even how Jesus talked about him, he told his disciples many times that someone was going to betray him. And it it wasn't just a, you know, Jesus drawing holy straws behind his back that night and oh shoot, it's Jesus, Judas, right? He knew. I find that interesting too because it also says in John that Judas's sin was worse than Pilate's. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, there's all there is a ton of examples throughout Scripture, and so this is what I mean by having that tension. That as Christians, it's yes, there is good. uh, It is good to question some of these things and try and flesh out our our understanding of them. But there is, to some extent, a tension that we just have to live with. I think as we see this play out through Scripture. Um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so what I would mean by being sovereign over something is that he is all-knowing, meaning that he knew that it would come into existence um, and that he was aware of the consequences of sin that would happen because of it, right? Uh, He is sovereign in the fact that he knows that people are going to commit sins before they commit them, uh, but he's also sovereign over who is going to be saved in the end, right? He knows these things. Um, Yeah, I don't know, Andrew, if you want to... Or Robbie, yeah. So, so just to clarify then, when you say that God is sovereign over something, you mean he is, if you're, if you're referring to his all-knowing um, attributes over that thing. Yeah.
Yeah, I would say it's, it's his all-knowing and it's, it fits within his will then, right? If we, if we try to separate God's all-knowing from his will and, and what he wills to happen, then we have things that collide within the attributes of God, I think. Because um, if he is sovereign over it and he knows that it'll happen, but he doesn't will it to happen, well then, how can he be omnipotent? How can he be all-powerful if those things can't cross somehow, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. Andrew, Andrew, do you have other thoughts? Am I, is, does that clarify my position on it, or my understanding at least? Because I, I, it is one of those tensions that I don't think that in our human understanding and, and our capacity for understanding who God is, that we would maybe even necessarily ever completely understand. And that's why I say there's that tension there. Because we see both play out in scripture. And I don't think that either one cancels out the other or makes it less true. I think that we can see, because it plays out in scripture, we can see that those are both true somehow at the same time and rest in that God has given us choice over whether or not we sin, and yet he knows if we're going to do that. And because he's God and completely other and completely outside of his creation, somehow he's able to do that. Yeah, if you want to give it a shot, go for it. Assuming that's the case, he asked God to remove it from him several times, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you, which also would point, and to me, would point toward the sin, God said, my grace is sufficient for you, you know, for your sin. I assume it was a sin. Um, and that, to me, is God using sin in Paul's life to humble him. Sometimes the argument is, well, then, where did sin come from? Well, it's God's fault. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes that can be the argument. Because mm -hmm. if he knew it was going to happen, then he's on the hook for it, right? So I think what, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Portland, but maybe what you're saying is the tension is, is holding these, these scriptures in balance where God is clearly described as being sovereign over everything. Mm -hmm. Um, but like Phil's saying, but also there's passages God cannot be tempted with evil. Yeah. God does not sin. Yeah. And yet, human logically speaking, we go, well, that doesn't make any sense because if he's sovereign over everything, then it's his fault. And the scriptures seem to allow this tension where it's like, 
you don't you don't just discount some scripture because of others. Is that what you, is? Yeah, yeah. I think talking about tension. Is that what you kind of mean? Yeah, yeah. Rather than going, well, then the answer must be that God's not sovereign, or He didn't know, or the answer must be that He's the author of sin. We both know the Bible says neither of those things. The Bible, yeah, kind of holds both. Even though logically, sometimes we go. So use the example of the Trinity. Logically, humanly speaking, we go, that's impossible. God can't be one God and yet three persons. Hmm. And yet the Bible holds this. No, he is, though. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, Wayne Grudem. Uh, this is a quote that helped me to understand it. Um, it's outside of my own words, so maybe that will help, too. This is directly from Wayne Grudem's uh, theology or Bible doctrine book. Uh, and he says, we must... Also, never think that sin surprised God or challenged or overcame his omnipotence or his providential control over the universe. Therefore, even though we must never say that God himself sinned or he is to be blamed for sin, yet we must also affirm that the God who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, like it says in Ephesians 1.11, did ordain that sin would come into the world, even though he does not delight in it, and even though he ordained that it would come through come about through the voluntary choices of moral creatures. So God is unable to sin, right? And so, like I said, that tension shows that we have choice, and yet God knew that it would happen. And so, yeah, Andrew, I think you summarized what I'm trying to say well. Because you think, too, like, Jesus coming to die for sin was not an afterthought. It was before the creation of the world. So again, it's not like God said, man, sin came out of nowhere. I did not see that coming. I got to come up with a plan. He had the plan before he created everything. So yeah. he was aware of it. And yet, I think, yeah, we would never say, well, then it's God's fault. No, we, we chose, even though he knew. Yeah. It's just kind of this. One, one other thing I would have to add. I just listened to a book by A.W. Pink, mm. which is better than he <laughs> uh, said that the mistake that we make is we think of God as a person, hmm. a person in our understanding. We think of him as a human, actually, inevitably, because we know of humans and we know that we're in his image, and so we it's close, and it's kind of like well, in our minds, we're almost like that's what we're not going to characterize him after actually after humans. Whereas we're a shadow, an image of him. Yeah. We are like him in some ways, but to think of him, like we struggle with these ideas that seem like they're opposed to each other, and we're actually talking about a, a being who is very different from us. Yeah. Like you said, the Trinity, like God's nature is, if you said a person knew that sin was going to happen and created the world and all this stuff, you like, yeah, that can't happen in a human mind. Like, you can't know about it and have it happen without you being involved. Like, God is not a human. And so, yeah, yeah I think you That you're... helps to, to bring ourselves back to remembering that God is not a human. God is not like us. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also okay to wrestle with these things, right? Um, I don't. Like, I do believe that God's grace is big enough for us to be able to have conversations like this and, and maybe still walk away not fully understanding or even maybe even disagreeing with certain aspects. And his, his grace is enough that it can cover those things um, as we continue to grow and walk and learn about who he is and grow into a more accurate understanding of who he is for all of us in this room. So, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Do you have any other follow-up questions or... Or not defined, but, but used in talking about this sovereignty of God over sin is uh, words like cause and mm. knowledge or foreknowledge. Because they're very different things. Just because God knows something is going to happen does not mean that He causes it to happen. When you mentioned that, I think, when you mentioned uh, in that book you were reading there that, that uh, it's, it's the free will of man that caused sin. That's the root cause of it. God knowing about something happening and allowing it to happen does not mean he's not sovereign over it, that he couldn't stop it. It doesn't mean he caused it either. Yep. So, so it's, and we have to make those distinctions because um, our understanding
understanding of God becomes very skewed if you don't. Mm. And, and sort of like this thing you said, oh no, that comes very close to saying God is the cause of sin now. If we think that God is the cause of sin, we are so far off track mm. that we will, we will worship the false God. And so if we, we read the passage somebody referred to where it says God cannot sin and he does not cause anyone to sin, or does not tempt anyone to sin, uh, if, we, if we hold to that, but then also hold a view that says that uh, he, he, temptation, sorry, is the word that's used, that God yeah. doesn't tempt anyone to sin. So if we say that God doesn't tempt anyone to sin, but we also hold a contradictory view that God makes them sin, then, then again, it's more than just a logical error. Or it, it's, it's more than just not understanding God because he's other than we are. Yeah. It's actually an impossibility. Yeah, yeah. I I think another. I I think along the lines of what all of us are talking about here um, is to look at it. Uh, I don't know, Andrew. You can let me know if you think I'm off or anyone else can too. Uh, is to look at it like through the lens of is it a test or a trap? Right. God doesn't lay traps for us. He doesn't tempt us. He doesn't set things in front of us and dangle the carrot in front of our face and like say, "Ooh, like come, come do this thing that's against me." Um, but I think God does set tests in front of us. And the difference between a test and a trap is the motive behind it and the the person behind it. Um, so if you look at the test in the garden, um, even the way Paul talks about in Romans chapter seven. Uh, about the law, and, and he didn't know sin before he knew the law, but was the law wrong? Was the law bad for bringing that to light? Absolutely not. The law is good, um, and yet it allowed sin an opportunity to be brought forth. So when God in the garden created the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he wasn't wrong in doing so. He wasn't uh, evil in doing so by any means, right? We even read that all of creation is good. It's very good. Um, it's the act of man that is wrong there. And so a trap is set by someone with wrong motives, right? You see the serpent lay a trap. He tests their knowledge, but it's not a test in the good sense. It's the test as in like trying to get them skewed off of what God has said. I don't know, does that help? Because laying out a test could, could provide an opportunity for something. Even if you see the, the people, because um, God does this throughout the rest of uh, the scriptures as well as lay opportunities in front of people to make the right decision, to follow him, to follow his wisdom, to live life in the way that he's ordained it. Similar to Genesis chapter one and two, where he gives them the tree and says, eat from the tree of the knowledge, or sorry, eat of the tree of life, not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they choose wrong. And you see uh, even stories like in the desert when uh, Moses strikes the rock instead of just getting the water to flow. God told him what to do, but Moses directly disobeyed. Um, we see stuff like that, right? The, the, the test is not a wrong thing. It's an opportunity to show that we love God. It's an opportunity to show that we want to serve him and, and be in relationship with him, is how I would put it. I, I don't know if that helps. I, I hope it does. Without a chance to disobey, dis like, God wants the creatures that would glorify him.
I think it, it glorifies God more. So Christ on the cross glorifies God. That sacrifice for sin. And I think that, well, I think that's something God desired to bring about. And didn't need. There needs to be a very clear distinction between that. Yeah. Maybe that's because of his nature. If, if Scrooge is a good example, he had all this good stuff, his money kept it all for himself. God's nature is such that he will he will give with all the interest that he has, but he has nothing to give it to. Right? He didn't need anyone to give it to, he still did. He created us because his goodness just flows in from him to yeah, I think, I think Scripture points, uh, paints a picture that God is, he desires to be glorified. It's not that he needs to be glorified, but he desires to be. All of creation cries out to him, right? All of creation sings his praises. Um, and so even then to think of, of, if we're thinking of the topic of sin, how is God best glorified? It's through, there's, there's, and hear me out, there's two options here. There's the option A is that he's glorified through his the forgiveness of Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection, through God's forgiveness, through our belief in that, he is glorified, right? Because he is shown as a God of love and mercy and justice and peace. And when God enacts justice on people who do sin, he is also glorified because he is a just God. And so it's not that sin brings him glory, it's that his reaction to it brings him glory. And, and the, our interaction with seeing God be a God of justice brings him glory because it helps us understand who he is. So again, I, I want to make sure I'm clear. It's not sin that brings him glory in that instance, right? Us doing wrong does not glorify God. However, God's reaction to that brings him glory. Does that make sense? It might be something you have to chew on a little bit more than willing to talk about it more because it's, like I said, it's one of those things where it's a tension that we have to wrestle through and I think it's good to do that. Um, but also, like I said, I think for the, the amount of time that we have in a course like tonight, we'll, we'll have to probably keep moving. But yeah, conversations about these, absolutely. They are open to be had because they are important to have. Um, so yeah, that I think... Unless someone else has thoughts that they'd like to share on that. We had some good discussion there. That was awesome. Thank you. All right. So I want to move on then. Uh, we're going to be talking about our sin nature and inherited guilt. Um, yeah. We see all of scripture uh, point to the fact that something is gravely wrong with humanity. I, I don't, I think scripture very much so helps us with this, but I think even if you guys were to look around in your lives, you'd probably be able to see and agree that something is desperately wrong with humanity. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen evidence of that in your own life, whether it's sin against you, whether it's ways you've sinned against other people. We know that there's something wrong and scripture paints the same picture, but paints it incredibly clear. And so... We see an example like Cain and Abel, and what happens? There's murder, there's sin against man and against God. It is not good. Uh, why does God flood the earth? It's because it's filled with evil. It's filled with violence. And violence is not good in God's world. Why do, what do Abraham and Sarai do when God's plan doesn't come to fruition in the way that they were expecting? Is anyone familiar with that story? What do they do? They rape one of their slaves to try and forward God's plan. When God promised them a child, an offspring through Sarai, who would be Sarah, they, they raped Hagar and, and it was wrong. It's sin against humans, sin against God. Right? What about the Israelites after they cross the Red Sea and they're at Mount Sinai and Moses comes down with the, the first commandments? And one of those first commandments is do not make any carved images, do not make any idols of any other gods. What is the first thing that they do when Moses goes back up the mountain? They make idols and worship them, right? Something is desperately wrong with humanity. Um, there's other 
things that we can see in scripture, I'm sure you guys could list off a ton of examples like David and Bathsheba. We see Jesus nailed on the cross, right? The, the murder that's committed there, etc., etc. It's filled, right? We, like I said, the, the Bible points to it, our lives point to it. And so that, I think, brings up this idea, right? If, if God has continued to appointed men as leaders and people as his people, and we continue to fail, there's got to be something inherently wrong with us. Otherwise, it wouldn't keep happening. And so that's what we'd be talking about when we talk about the sin nature and inherited guilt is this, this posture, this heart posture towards God that is broken because of original sin. So uh, we covered it a little bit last week, but in case you didn't get a chance to listen to it or in case you weren't here, we'll cover it again just to, to lay some groundwork. Uh, a common question that gets brought up when we're talking about original sin or, or being guilty of the uh, original sin or inherited guilt uh, is the idea of how is it fair that I am guilty of Adam's sin? I'm sure that that's potentially a question that you guys have wrestled with. Um, and so there's a few things as it, that I think can help our understanding with this. Uh, and that is that the New Testament, for one, talks over and over again about how we all fall short of the glory of God. Not just one person, all of us do this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Romans 3, 23, uh, Romans 14, 12. Like there's, you can list off a ton. We could be here for quite a while if we were to just list verses and read them. Um, and so what scripture does is scripture paints Adam as a picture of what humanity is. Um, what all of humanity is. I'm not, uh, maybe this will help your understanding. This is something that I didn't think of until just now. Uh, but if you didn't know, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, uh, scholars actually do a lot of work translating the name Adam and the word man, because in the Hebrew, they're actually the same word. Uh, it doesn't change throughout scripture, but the, the scholars have to do the work of trying to figure out where they're using it as a proper name versus uh, using it as man. Um, and so with that picture, if Adam is a representative of man, even in Romans chapter 5, I believe it is, uh, where Paul talks about sin entering the world through one man, it's, he's painting this picture of that Adam is kind of this image of what we are in this room, what humanity has been throughout history uh, as a whole. Um, and so through that sin, death was brought in and all people sinned and all people died. Death reigned from Adam to Moses before the law even was there, proving that sin was still an issue. It's not like sin went away, even though there wasn't a law. Um, yeah, and so we see Paul talk about Jesus in this way too, as a, as a symbol of what the new human should look like, as what true image bearers of Christ should look like. Uh, and so... Last week, I clarified, and I'll say it again, and we can talk about it if, if there's questions, absolutely. Uh, Adam, Adam's original sin, his heart posture, specifically about eating the fruit, we are not guilty about eating the fruit. You and I are guilty for our own sin. However, the inherited condition, the inherited guilt, the inherited sinful nature that we are all guilty of from birth is transferred to every single human that has come into existence. Does that make sense? Is there any questions or anybody have comments about that? I don't want to just like skim over that and, and not leave room for discussion about that. Clear as mud? All right. So, if we're not guilty of Adam's sin, we are all guilty of our own sin. Like I said, there's tons of passages uh, that show this. But I think in our own lives, we would see this too. We all have that natural bent towards sin. Um, our own hearts are sinful. So we, we've talked lots about how sin is, is against humans and against God, right? Sinning against a human is sin against God. Sin against God often affects other humans. Um, and, but it's, it's a heart posture that is this sin. And that's why behavioral modification, so in other words, if you notice that you're doing things wrong and you think I should stop doing that, just stopping that action is not enough. Um, behavioral modification is not enough for salvation. We need a heart change. We need to be changed by our very nature and to be made into the image of God. Um, and so that is why then 
when we go throughout life, we see ourselves come up against situations where, yes, we might not choose to, to act out on our sin. Sin might not manifest itself in a physical action. But that's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is able to, through that, explain that, you know, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery, right? They would always teach that you couldn't commit adultery as in actually going out and doing it. And Jesus came and upped the ante because if it's in our hearts, it is still sin. Does that make sense? Yeah? Is there any questions so far? I've talked a lot. We're ripping through this. It is important to note that humans are born as sinners. Yeah. Uh, I think you, I listened to the last week's Any other thoughts or comments? So if we're born with like a natural bent towards sin, um, sin nature, what happens when we come to know Jesus? Do we still have a sin nature? Or does Jesus take that away? It's uh, a good question. This might be like I'm trying to trick you. I was going to say, is this a test or a trick? Yes, like so literally this uh, uh, last week, I listened to a podcast. Someone asked me, hey, can you give me some of your thoughts on this thing? Mm -hmm. And the guy in it said, like, no, when you surrender to Jesus, he takes away your sin nature. You're a saint now. You don't have a sin nature. It's possible for you to be, like, perfect. Gnosticism. But, <laughs> Gnosticism. But, or, like, so, you know, and that one yeah. of the passages that I often... Here is 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone, is in new, if, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Is that, does that mean, like, Jesus kind of takes away our sin nature, or do we have both? Or? It's a very good question. My understanding would be that, uh, I actually heard a young adult say it quite well just last night. We were talking about sin, um, and it, it's as if it's two natures at war with each other now. Um, and so if you have noticed, if you are a follower of Christ, you have probably still sinned. And by probably, I mean you have. And why can I say that? Because I know it's true of myself and I know that it's true of everyone in this room because I've talked to lots of you, right? Uh, and so to think that our sin nature is gone and then we are somehow like unable to sin and we can somehow get to a point where we live a life without sin entirely, uh, I wish you the best of luck, but it's not going to happen. Um, there's no scriptural evidence for that either. Uh, because even, oh man, of course I would forget the passage as soon as I need it. Uh, but the, I believe it's in one of John's letters, one, two, or three, where he talks about... Uh, anyone says he has no sin, he's a liar. Yeah. First John 1, 8. Which would be a sin. Yeah. <laughs> right? So, yeah, I, I don't think that there is room for that within Scripture from what we can see. Um, I don't know. Is there any other... Well, like we said about, like, two, it's like two... It's like you're at war with yourself. 
Because I felt that when I'm like, you actually feel like a battle going on yeah. inside of you, right? Yeah. What I want to do, I don't do. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. I do, I don't want to do. Yeah. And it's and like his, this and his, answer, and his answer to that is, like, who, who can rescue me from this body? Yeah. <laughs> saying, be Jesus Christ our Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's ongoing. Christ is continuing to saving us. Until we will be changed by him completely. I think that's yeah. why, like Paul says, like one of your jobs is to put the flesh to death, like, and he's speaking men, like metaphorically. Yep. But that sin nature, like, it's our one with the help of the Holy Spirit, we're like trying to kill this sin nature. Yeah. Right. It's this ongoing battle, even though we are a new creation. Yeah. Right. Like, but I think. That idea of like this war going on is a great picture. Like yeah. until the day we die. Yeah, and so I think it, I think it is important to make sure that we talk about then that the fact that what Christ has done on the cross, and we're going to talk about this later on, right? There's weeks to come where we're going to talk about this. The work that Christ did on the cross breaks those chains of sin and of death, and so it's only through the work of Christ that we have the ability to actually walk in relationship with Him and know Him, and therefore choose well and wisely with the test that God allows to be put in front of us, right? So, um, yeah, a, a good, like if we can get on a really real level for myself when I was struggling with addiction, when I first started coming out of that, I remember very distinctly, and even to this day there's moments like this where there's something put in front of me, so to speak, and there is this conscious choice that can be made of do I want to sin or do I want to follow God? And I can tell you that when I was not living in right relationship with God, I didn't think twice about that decision. I sinned every time. But as I grew in my relationship with Christ, as the sanctification began happening, then that choice became more and more apparent so that I could see what was in front of me and start recognizing and choosing, okay, no, I'm going to choose to listen to God's wisdom in this scenario and choose to follow him, choose to follow Christ, and choose to be imitators of God, right? So that, that's a, a process that happens, and I think that it is... I think that it would be fair to say that as followers of Christ, if you, if you have truly accepted what Christ has done for you, that you will, over time in your life, sin less, but that does not mean that you will be sinless, yeah. right? The way I describe it to my kids is like you have, it's like a muscle. So like you have your sin nature, and then you have one part is God, and every time you get into the sin nature, that muscle gets bigger and bigger, and so it gets easier and easier to sin, yep. vice versa, every time you turn away and look to God, that muscle gets bigger, yeah. it actually gets easier and easier, but yeah. it takes that conscious effort to acknowledge both, yep. and then to make a choice, and it'll get easier. Yeah. Even, even chemically speaking in our brains, that you're actually describing what happens. It's kind of wild. I mean, imagine that. God created us as physical beings, so there's physical evidence to what happens, not just uh, fluffy feelings about it. Um, but when we, the way I picture it, uh, in your brain, there's neural pathways that are always firing. So every decision you make, everything you interact with, there's neural neuro pathways that are being fired. And every single time your brain sends electricity down one of those, that pathway gets stronger and stronger and easier and easier in your brain. It's like water. It will take the path of least resistance. Your brain does a similar thing because our brain is processing so much information that it just it takes the easiest route. So when you're confronted with sin, if you continually choose to sin, that is going to be the pathway that your brain takes easiest. And it's, it's fascinating because, um, I mean, scientists would be willing to debate it because it's the world that we live in. But uh, it's like when God comes into your life and you accept what Christ has done, that there is a break on the power and the hold of that. Uh, and so then when you start recognizing what Christ has done and there's that event that's big in your brain that you have become a follower of Christ, it, um, I'm, I will say I'm not a scientist, so maybe these aren't the words that they would use, but it literally opens up the possibility for new pathways to be made. And so the way that I look at it, uh, when you're talking about sin nature, this is how I'm going to try and connect our thoughts, uh, if you've ever walked in a field with a ton of snow, chances are you're probably going to walk in the footsteps of the person behind you. And over the course of a month, there's probably going to be a pathway that's beaten down the field, right? If that pathway 
is the only pathway, of course it's the one you're gonna take, right? You usually make fun of people that fall off that trail. Um, however, when we have an interaction with Christ and we decide to follow him, it's like we are choosing to step off of that pathway and start making a new one, right? And so we've recognized that maybe that isn't the best way across this field. And so then we can choose to step off of that path. But every time you come up to it, you'll probably still be tempted, like, I don't want snow in my boots again. I don't want to have to like, take the extra energy to walk through this. But every single time that you do it, it gets easier and easier, and soon there's that trail built there. And over the course of the winter, the snow blows in over the other trail, and eventually you don't see it the same way that you used to. That's one way that I look at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Andrew talked about that when we were covering spiritual beings in, in one of the last theology sessions. Yeah. It's not, again, not just against flesh and blood, right? So then, that actually brings me exactly to where I was hoping to go with this conversation, so imagine that. Um, yeah. God, God's sovereignty, right? <laughs> um, the next thing that I wanted to bring up is that I think sometimes... And maybe these aren't the words that you would use for yourself, uh, so bear with me and I'll try and flesh it out to help explain it. But I think sometimes we think of sin as this like other supernatural entity that is in our lives, right? It acts kind of like another demon, so to speak. Um, and I don't believe that scripture gives good evidence for that. I think that scripture shows rather that sin is a result of our own choices and our own heart posture towards God. Um, so even with Adam and Eve, yes, the serpent was there tempting them, but their own choice is what is counted as the sin. Paul in, in Romans doesn't go back and say, you know, if it wasn't for that darn serpent, we wouldn't be here, right? Sin entered the world through the serpent, and now here we are. He doesn't. He shows that the blame is on Adam. And even the fact that God would punish the sins of us and not just be like, well, it was just a serpent. You guys keep doing whatever you guys want to do, right? Sin is not a supernatural entity in our lives. It is a, a heart posture. It is our very nature that we would be against God because of the fall. Yeah. All right, before we move on, is there anything, any questions that are coming up? Any thoughts? I know we've had good conversations. So I'm not, I just want to give opportunity that if there is questions or thoughts that we cover those. All right, well, we might finish a little bit early this week. We, I, I'm kind of surprised we tore through it a little bit faster than I thought that we would. Um, so like I said earlier, I want to open it up that if you guys do have questions, then you can feel free. We're, we're here next week again. If you have questions, you can be early or stay a little bit later or whatever, or you can send them in, whatever, if you want, come and talk to Andrew or I. We'd love to do that. Uh, but again, like last week, if we're talking about sin, and that's a note that we ended on last week, I don't want to just leave us there. Um, I don't want to leave us feeling helpless. We've already talked about it some. Uh, but I wanted to, to take a moment and share the gospel with you guys because it's really easy then, I think, to take a look at our lives and recognize the choices that we're making or the choices that we've made and feel this really heavy weight of guilt and shame about those things because they are against a completely and utterly holy God. Um, and so the, the weight of sin is not just the consequences that we enact upon others, right? If we sin against someone and there's natural consequence, yeah, that stuff is hard to work through often. More often than not, it's horrible to work through. But that's not the utmost of the weight of sin. The weight of sin is that we have sinned against a perfect God, a holy God, a loving God, a just God. And so to make that right, there has to be payment for that sin. And the, the wages of sin is death. And so without payment for that sin, death is what we all deserve. And so the only way to get around that, the only, by get around it, I don't mean as like a cop-out. The only way for that to be nullified 
is through payment. And Jesus offered that payment to us through his life and his death and his resurrection on the cross. And to gain access to that, all you have to do is believe. Um, Paul says in Romans, is it 10.9? I always forget this passage every single time. 10.9, he says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts, then you will be saved. So if you haven't made that decision, I would, I would definitely suggest it. Um, I don't know, maybe that's too lighthearted. But it is a choice to, to follow God's wisdom that he has shown us here that is wise unto salvation or to go it your own way. Um, but not, not as a threat, but I can promise you that if you choose to go it your own way, it will not end well. Um, so yeah, I think that's it that I have to, to present. So like I said, we're going to finish that a little bit early tonight. Unless there's other questions or comments, um, we have lots of time for discussion then, if there is. Maybe even just to say, like, the next few weeks, or not that this isn't good, but this is the bad news yeah. of our condition, and then the next few weeks are the person and work of Christ and redemption and what that means, and so yeah. don't miss the next few weeks, yeah. or else you'll leave going, oh. <laughs> yeah. Any other final closing thoughts or other than Gemma blowing raspberries? She's very distracted. She is. All right. So I'm going to close in a word of prayer. Um, and then we, you guys are done for tonight. You get off early. Congratulations. Yeah, let's, let's take a moment to pray. Father, I want to thank you for tonight. Um, I want to thank you that you, uh, Yahweh, are bigger than conversations like this, that we don't have to be afraid to have conversations like this, that, that as we have conversations and in our own imperfections, we don't maybe understand things perfectly that you have presented to us through your word, or even we, I think sometimes all of us uh, misunderstand what people are saying. And so, Father, I just pray that in this room and, and as we go out from here, that um, you would just give us understanding about these things. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, to even give a chance to everyone in this room to, to understand what they're saying and not just what we're uh, looking to understand, because I know that's something that I do when it comes to sin, is to try and understand what other people are saying in the light of what I understand in the words that I would use. So, Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for the awesome discussion that we got to have around this. Um, and, and God, I ultimately thank you that you are greater than all of our sins, that your payment through Jesus on the cross is greater than all of these things, uh, that we can have freedom from sin and from death. And so, Father, as we go from here, I just pray that you would help us to be good image bearers of you, that we would imitate you well, um, that we would recognize that the curse of sin and death has been broken, and so we can choose to follow you and choose to walk wisely in your statutes. So, yeah, thank you again for today. I pray that you just keep us all safe as we travel home in, in the winter weather. In your name I pray. Amen.